There was a part of you that missed red flags. There was a part of you that thought you could change somebody. For all of these reasons, there is a finger pointing back at you saying, I got to see how I got into this. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. I'm here with producer Jason Filippo. On this episode, we'll be talking with our friend, a regular guest of the show, Linda Carroll. She is an amazing, amazing is actually it's an underperforming word for her. She's an amazing therapist. She is brilliant, has brilliant, brilliant insight to issues people have inside and outside relationships. She's been in the game for a long time. I don't want to make her feel old, so we won't say how long. But today, we'll be talking about first love fantasies or love fantasies in general, why falling out of love is not a reason to leave a relationship, that one surprised me, and three reasons which are good reasons to leave relationships, and last but not least, the myth of closure, why we shouldn't worry about it, why maybe it doesn't even exist in the first place, and what we can do when we end relationships, sometimes scandalous ones, sometimes uh, regular ones, and what we should do to move forward inside and outside relationships. As usual, an amazing one with Linda Carroll. Jason, what'd you think? You were you were here for this? Of course it's amazing. I love Linda. She's such a sweetheart and so smart. You, you always learn something when Linda comes on the show, and that's why, you know, that's why she keeps coming back. Now, let's hear from Linda Carroll. So, Linda, thanks for coming back on the show. Always a pleasure. You know, it's so great to come on. I always hear about people who are the most obscure in my life who have heard this program. Somebody's son in Michigan or somebody's daughter in Pennsylvania or somebody's mother in California. So I always find it fascinating how many people of so many types and stations listen to your program. Well, that's always nice to hear. And I'll tell you right now, a friend of mine, Jay Moore, who is an actor, he loves your episodes. And he was like, you got to have her back. You got to have her back. Got to have her back. So here we are again. And shout out to Jay Moore. He is a huge Linda Carroll fan and a slightly less fervent Art of Charm fan. So we're glad to have you here, though. We're going to talk about love because I just got married recently, and it's funny, there's a, a couple of camps. You got married, oh, that's so great, is 90%, and then, oh, you know, I thought my marriage would last forever, <laughs> that's, that's 10%. And I think those people have a little bit of, maybe a little bit of baggage there, but I'd love to discuss a little bit about things like first love fantasies, relationships coming to an end, you know, the myth of closure, for example, and things that happen in relationships, such as falling out of love and what we should do in those cases. So you're the perfect person to discuss those things with. Okay, great, I'm ready. So let's talk about first love fantasies, because I think that a lot of people who write in say things like, I'm so afraid to move for this job that I got that's my dream career because my girlfriend lives in my hometown or something like that. And Almost without fail, it's, and she's my first girlfriend, but I just know it's amazing. She's everything I've ever wanted. And I hate popping those bubbles, but I also hate to see somebody not take a big career move or opportunity because of a first-time relationship when they're 22 years old. If you think about the first time you did anything that had a rush in it, whether it's skydiving or rappelling or flying an airplane, even being in an airplane, when you think about the first time and you think about the 10th time, which is it that stands out the most? It's the first. The first time we feel those feelings that are so extraordinary, so chemically based, our brains change. It is profound. The first time is profound like no other. 
And what happens is that people misinterpret that first rush and the wonder of it with the person. And it isn't really about the person most of the time. In fact, most of the time, we don't even know who that person really is. But it's about those feelings and that person that we were that experienced it. For most of us, that happened in adolescence. And if you think about what's happening in adolescence, our brains are so different in adolescence that there is a kind of an intensity about everything. So we're remembering the intensity and the pleasure And that has so little to do with who that human being is or would be in our life. And we don't put that together until sadly, we try it again, like many of my clients have, or like I went back and found my first love when I was 40 years old. And I was full of two things. One was an amazement that actually those feelings I felt at 11, I still felt. And two, intense gratitude, I wasn't with him. So the rush came, but I saw all sorts of other things, like the fact that he had three drinks before lunch that happened that I didn't pay any attention to it when I was young. So does that make sense about the brain, about the intensity of the adrenaline flow, that that's what we long for? Yeah, of course, the distinction is quite clear. So what we're talking about here is brain chemistry tricking us into associating it with a person. So instead of thinking, wow, this relationship was so great because I'm getting cared for, someone's telling me nice things, I'm feeling loved, I'm having sex, all of these things feel great, we think, wow, Angela is the best. There's no one who's gonna be better than her. But really, what we should be saying more accurately is the feelings that she's creating in me that a lot of other people could probably do, are so unique and unusual, novel, and feel so good that I'm developing an addiction or at least an affinity for those same set of feelings. And once you make it about the feelings and not about the person, as unromantic as this might be, you might save yourself a lot of trouble because then you're not thinking, I can't get this anywhere else. You're thinking, sure, this isn't maybe a commodity, but it is definitely something that I can develop with other people inside any healthy relationship or unhealthy relationship, actually. (laughs) Right, we identify it with Angela. We think it's about Angela. And you know, the internet's so full of stories about people that reconnect at their high school reunion or their college reunion and they're 80 years old, and they finally are together, and it's all wonderful. The internet doesn't tell us about the 90% of the people or 98% of the people who tried it and made a terrible mess. Because I think about who I was at 18 and how little I knew myself and how little I knew what was right for me and how much of what I was choosing in love had nothing to do with actually not only just who I was, but what love is. And I think so many of us are like that. So we get lost in these stories looking for, quote, the one, which is a big red flag, the idea of the one. But we can go back to that first one as some kind of an idealized version of something that doesn't exist. This is something that I wish I'd known when I was younger. There's a lot of people listening right now thinking, "Uh, well, of course, that's the way it is. But I know when I was in my early 20s, I had no idea about this, especially if you're not thinking about brain science and brain chemistry. We're designed to associate these feelings with people because that's the way that reproduction and survival and evolution and things like that work. So we have to undo the trick by thinking about this as rationally as possible when we're designed to not think about this rationally really at all. 
Because falling in love is not about relationship compatibility. It is about procreation. It's about all kinds of things that don't have anything to do with who that person is and who we are. But there are also people listening that are thinking, yeah, I know all that research, but you know, when I look back on Fred, they don't understand what we had when we were 17 years old. But I think that it's true for just about everybody, whether we look back and we identify the feeling with the person. We didn't know the person. You don't know a person till you have been with them a long time. So that there are readers or listeners who are doubting this and thinking it doesn't apply to them. But I think it applies to most of us that that fantasy of first love is not about the person that we fell in love with. It's about wanting those feelings back or wanting that adolescent person back. And that first time it was so different and unique and powerful. And it's such a drug experience. It was getting high the first time, if you want to put it in those terms. This isn't just about first love. The first love, of course, has the novelty factor, but I've heard plenty of adults in their 40s and even older say something like, I've never felt like this before, so this must be more real, when really it's just different. Or it's exactly the same, but our emotional memory or our memory of those emotions just isn't so spot on. We're chasing the dragon, but really we're getting the dragon every time. We just don't realize it. It's a different dragon. I remember listening to a really great therapist say that he never liked working with people when they were in that state of love, whether they were 40 or 14, because they were in an illusion at that point that they did not have to walk their own life as a person from the inside out, that somehow the idea that they have found somebody else took them away from any existential reality of what it means to be an individual human being. And that, you know, we can feel that at 40. Sure, it's strong, it's new, but alas, sometimes for me, at least as a marriage coach and a marriage therapist, so many times I see people who come through the door in their 40s, they found the right person, it's all perfect. Four years later, they're back in my office and they say, I can't believe it, I've done it again. Sometimes they say, this is worse than the last time because until they've really figured out their own part of relationships and why they're attracted to the kind of people they're attracted to and what the dance is that's difficult, that happens for all of us, they're going to keep projecting their idea that if I find the right person, I'll be the right person. But that's not true. I have to be the right person to find the right person. And how do we start that process? Because it's really hard for people who are looking for the right person to realize this truth. Because they keep thinking, well, that might be true for you, Linda, but I've already found it. And then they go, how does this keep happening? And they say, okay, Linda's right, I need to be the right person, but actually, I think I've found the right person again. How do we get out of this pattern, right? Because it's, it's hard when we're in it because the drugs are taking hold of our brain, right? It's working on us. The elixir is sloshing around in there. Even the smartest people, it's amazing. I, I know people who are brilliant and they still fall for this because whatever's going on in our brain is just a totally different system than the things that make us function in life. I know successful male and female executives who are in the relationship realm are, are just children. There's just no correlation between somebody who can negotiate a complex deal with international peacekeepers in the Middle East and somebody who just makes the dumbest decisions that even a sensible 17-year-old would not make when it comes to love and relationships. But love gets us in the most vulnerable part of who we are. And you can be a great executive decision maker in one part of your brain, 
but some other part of you may still be 11 or 9 or 14. And that vulnerability, when that gets touched, it brings us to all our most fragile places. And I think that there is a, you know, for many people, for most of us, we learn it because we come up against the same story over and over enough times in our relationships that we think, why does this keep happening? What's the common denominator? Maybe it's me. I want to talk for just a minute about bad blogs. That's the thing I'm thinking about a lot because I'm reading a lot of blogs because I write blogs and I'm especially reading blogs about love. And anybody can write a blog. You know, if I was a good writer and I was clever, I could write a blog about why cabbage is going to destroy your arteries or why fireflies make the best lovers. I could write a blog about anything and it would get published. And so many people write blogs about relationships that I think are really irresponsible and they do a lot of damage because they're people that really don't know anything about what the cycles are, people who write from their feeling rather than their experience or their education. So I started looking at blogs and I began to look at reasons to leave a relationship because I was I'm going to talk about that today. And I thought, well, what do people say about that? And I found a couple of really good ones. But some of them and the majority of them, I'd say, that were not written by people with any kind of educational experience or research experience about understanding cycles of relationships, talked about leaving relationships because if you feel boredom, if sex has slowed down, here's a good one. This is one of my favorites. If I don't feel in love all the time. Now, these are reasons to leave. If we fight about the same thing over and over, if it takes too much effort, if we like being apart, if we're too defensive, if we are having fantasies about an old partner, those are all reasons to leave. When in fact, all of those happen in normal relationships. So when a person is in sort of the fragile part of their relationship, the drugs have worn off, they're just sort of into ordinary life and they're finding that the things they fell in love with start to annoy them. And they're beginning to think, maybe I'd have been better off single instead of thinking, well, this is a normal cycle or season. Just like when you go to work every day, most of us don't go to work and feel ecstatic. But when we love what we do, we know that there are times that we don't like it or things we have to do in our job that really are a drag, like getting all the microphones to work for you. Yeah, yeah, there is that. The day-to-day. There's that, right? The, quote, bad blogs are telling us that on the first sign that we're in ordinary life with a person who is an ordinary person, that that means something that the relationship is over, that it needs to stop. It fits right into the idea that we have in our culture about everything being wonderful and finding the one and true love. And once you find the right one, you just sail smoothly till the end of your life. And it really does a lot of harm. So when you read a blog, make sure the person who wrote the blog knows something about what they're talking about other than what just happened with their first love or their third or their fifth. You're listening to The Art of Charm with Jordan Harbinger and his guest, Linda Carroll. We'll get right back to the show after a brief word from our sponsors. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. Let's get back to Jordan and Linda. It's always really easy to think about these things when we're in a current emotional state that is not as good when we compare these two things. And when I was really doing a lot of the dating stuff, one of our cardinal rules was to make sure that we talk with women or you know the opposite sex whenever they're in a positive emotional state, and if they're not, then to get them to that positive emotional state because that would help them say yes to meeting up again. So the example here really mirrors what your story is, which is that you meet somebody, you're at a bar, you're having fun with your friends, you're meeting a bunch of their friends, you're joking around, you're laughing, and you would get someone's phone number, and then the next day you call, and they're ironing or they're washing their clothes, it's not the same thing, and it's so boring, and you're just thinking, like, what did I ever like about this person? But more importantly, she's thinking, this guy sucks, I just, I need to go, I don't wanna talk to this person right now, I guess I don't wanna see him again. 
because we're in a different emotional state. And this sounds like what you're saying is happening in relationships. Well, you're, we want the high. We want the high. So when we see them in the bar that night and they're looking great and we're having a great conversation and everything seems to be clicking and the next day they're ironing, which is like the most boring thing I can think of, then that high, what happens to the high in our brain? What happens to that part of our brain that wants to feel the rush? How is there a rush when you're talking to someone who's ironing? They're trying to get to work. There is none. And because our culture is so strong about wanting the high all the time and having so little tolerance for the times between the high, we make a story up about this means that this isn't going to be the right person. So, and as we know, those drugs, when we fall in love, they have diminishing returns. So if you're still looking for that high all the time and you're 40 years old, you have to go through relationships faster and faster to get it. But I think the good news is that if you can say, well, this person's ironing, but they were great last night. So let's try it again tonight. If you have that kind of maturity to know that not every moment's going to be high, you know, then sometimes you can make a connection with somebody in spite of the ironing or finding the car keys or the bad, boring days that brings you over time a repeated pattern of feeling those highs and those good feelings, those juicy feelings. It seems like there's plenty of people who chase highs all the time, but there are also people who stay in relationships thinking it can't all be sunshine and rainbows. And meanwhile, they fight every night and they cheating on each other or whatever. You know, it can be doesn't even have to be that miserable. It can just be something that hasn't interested them for three years and they're in it because they've always been with this person and that's the way it is. And this is what relationships really are like. Okay, well, I started out saying there's three reasons, but I actually came up with four I think there are two reasons why you leave immediately. I think that the first has to do with if the person you're with is abusive, and I include not just verbal, sexual, emotional, but financial. I mean, financial abuse is a real issue. Taking your money out of your retirement and gambling it or lying about it and the other kinds of abuse we know about. Or if you're with somebody who has an ongoing character disorder and it manifests in addictions and lying and jealousy. It's constant. It's not just a bad moment. I think those are two reasons why you stop. And even with people who have major issues, I've seen a few people, not many, make good lives and do the work to be okay. So I never would say give up on a relationship, but get away and move away and protect yourself. I've come up with four reasons, but all four of them require one thing that's the same which is that the person leaving needs to understand how they got there. Even if it's a person you have to obviously get out of town as far away as you can because you're in some kind of danger, you still had a part in it. There was a part of you that missed red flags. There was a part of you that thought you could change somebody. And so for all of these reasons, there is a finger pointing back at you saying, I got to see how I got into this. Not necessarily in the same house, especially if you're in danger, but understanding what it is that you were thinking and didn't see. How come didn't you see? How come didn't you pay attention that you were with somebody who had, you know, at 46, had four different bankruptcies and nine wives and had been in jail three times for breaking and entering, but you thought you could change them? 
I hope that's extreme. I think so. I was about to make a joke about not getting personal here, but I, I don't think anybody, <laughs> I don't think anybody has that kind of partner right now. If you have that kind of partner right now, just run. I don't care how hard they're working at their life. I'm trying to make it so extreme that nobody thinks I'm talking to them. Yeah, exactly. They'll know, but we all know what I'm talking about. So Jay Moore, we're talking to you, buddy. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> Leave now. Okay. If you're with somebody who has a real character disorder, personality disorder, this does not mean that when they're mad, they look like a rattlesnake. This does not mean that when they're scared or upset or anxious, they get hysterical. A personality disorder, as we talked about last time, is something that has happened their entire life. A person who has major ongoing addictions or jealousy, which never abates, who can't look at themselves, that's number one. Consistent pattern over a lifetime, not when they're cornered. Number two, a person who's abusive to you with either financial abuse, sexual, emotional. Those two situations are probably not going to change. And even people who have major disorders can do something about it if they really decide to. It takes a long time. And I suggest getting away from the relationship until you're really sure or have as sure as a human could be that they're doing their work or taking their meds or going to their programs. But one and two really have to do with protecting yourself. The third reason to leave is when it's just not working. And here's the part that's really important. You've done all you know you can do. It doesn't mean that somebody's bad. Maybe you got together because you were needy or because you didn't choose well. You know, we have to have some strength in our ego to choose a person that's right from us. And some of us leave our first life, our family life or a college life or whatever it is. And if we don't ever repair some of those early attachment ruptures, we keep looking for someone to replace what we didn't get. And that's one reason. Another reason is that sometimes you just run out. What worked at 22 doesn't work at 40 and nobody is wrong. But the caution about that is to slow it down, to not leave because communication is a problem. Learn how to communicate better and learn what your part of the trouble is. So I think that the instinct is to try to go because we want that good feeling without realizing that part of that good feeling has to come from within us. So what I'm really saying is that when you have inevitable trouble, do the work to find out, can you fix it? Can you fix your part of it? And if you can't, can you understand what your part of it is? Because guess what happens if you don't, if you're part of it, is that you tend to be someone who's always pushing away intimacy or that you're a clinger or that you're always trying to fix or caretake somebody who needs you, guess what you're going to find after you leave this person? Another one of those? They're standing around everywhere waiting to be saved, to be fixed, to push away and reject. So we've got to know our part of the dance so we don't redo it. I think that there are times when you just know and it's not a feeling like I can't stand this person or I'm so bored or I have to get out of here. But you know, for your own reasons, that you really are done. It is probably less to do with the other person than with you. And it's something that's hard to talk about because it's so individual. But I want to say that it is very different than those dramatic feelings that come in every relationship, which are I'd rather be single or if that person tells the story one more time, I'll scream. This is a whole different thing. Something in you says, I can't be here anymore. 
And it's not in your brain and it's not in your feelings. That fourth reason, it's something that is so deep in your gut that you just know it's not panicky. You don't have to run, but you know you're done. And that's harder to talk about. It often gets misconstrued as what happens in a normal relationship. My mother, who died in January, who was so brilliant and wonderful, said to me one time, she said, nobody knows what hatred is until they've been married 60 years. I thought that was the greatest thing. I mean, she (laughs) had a great marriage, you know. They were fabulous together in so many ways, but their intensity also got them into trouble. You know, lots of feelings happen over a long period of time with another person. We can't act on those feelings when they're present for three days or a week or a moment. So we don't leave when we don't feel in love anymore, because that's a feeling that can come back. Or when we are having a round circle, I call them loops of trouble over and over. We fight about the same thing. I can help people out of that so fast. Usually I can help them out of that in two sessions. We're recurring fight because it's not about the fight. It's about something under the fight. And when they find out, it's like, oh, there you are. I found you again. So there's a lot that can be repaired if you just have the skill to know how to repair it. And some things can't. But my real message here is repair what you can, especially the part that has to do with you. Because guess who's going with you if you leave? You. Yeah. Wherever you go, there you are, right? That's right. We'll be right back with more from Linda Carroll after these oh-so-brief announcements. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. For a list of all of our amazing sponsors and discounts, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. And now for the conclusion of our interview with Linda Carroll. What about the myth of closure? Let's wrap with this subject because, uh, well, it's about closure. You hear this a lot. It's actually a cliche, so there you go. Oh, I just need closure. I want closure on this. I never got any closure. I understand if a loved one passes away or something like that, okay, that you never get a chance to say goodbye. That is tragic. There's no getting around it. We're talking about closure in relationships. And I guess I'm not even sure what that means. When relationships for me are over, they tend to be over. That said, I've never been blindsided getting dumped or you know been cheated on or anything like that that I know of. So Maybe I have different issues with this or not the same issues as other people. Can we discuss this? Yeah, I think it's a new age concept. I don't believe in it. I don't think there is such a thing as closure. It's part of the culture that wants perfection. It's part of our let's get on to happiness or let's get the bottom line or let's kind of close the deal. But with humans in human emotions, we don't have closure. You think about certainly If a relationship ends, and as you're saying, you know, you feel done with it, but there's still some feelings about something, about that guy you were that first got into that relationship, about hearing that that person you're in a relationship with is in some kind of trouble or is ill or has just won the lottery. There's a connection in some way, whether it's negative or positive. I think as humans, we carry our life story. It's like the tapestry of who we are. And the idea that closure somehow finishes it and we sign it and it's done, I think belittles us as humans, that there's some way that that it's like a sound bite. I don't think one's life is a sound bite. We carry everything. I remember my first affair couple, which was like 30 years ago. The guy had had an affair. It was a man. He had had an affair with somebody who he worked with. And they came into my office. I didn't really know much about affairs or what I was doing. 
But I was really struck by the fact that his wife kept insisting that he had to never speak to the woman again, not even to say he was done, and that she kept saying to him, you couldn't have cared about her if you love me. And he said, I didn't care about her. And something felt really wrong with the story. And I thought about it and I reflected on it. And then I thought, what kind of a guy is having this affair for years with someone he works with and doesn't care about her? And it led me to really think about this. And what I thought about was it kind of taps into the myth of closure, that we can kind of put parts of ourselves away as though they don't exist. And I see this happen a lot with people who have been in an affair and they're trying to heal from it, that they are somehow part of the deal seems to be that if I'm going to repair with my partner and put my relationship back together, part of that has to be, I have to say, I never cared about the other person to begin with. We're finished and there's total closure there. I don't think there is closure. I think that they're a part of every person that we've been in relationship with, even if we didn't know their name, that they are somehow in us. And that I want to think I'm a human being who does care about them at some level. I think that it gets into, I remember Anderson Cooper, I think it was on maybe The View, I can't remember, but he said, there's no such thing as closure. It's such a silly word. I love that because I love Anderson Cooper. I love everything he says. (laughs) But I think it's really was true. It doesn't exist. Everything that we're a sum total of all of our life parts, including relationships we wish we'd never gone down that road they're still a part of us. Maybe they're a part of our wisdom, our compassion, or our self-acceptance, or our self-hatred. I don't know what they are, but they're not not a part of us. Just like every scar on our body is a part of what we are. It sounds like something I don't want to be true necessarily, and I think a lot of people are probably in that camp, but whether it's true or not, I have no idea. It does make sense because we get experiences with all of those people who are a part of our past whether they're good or bad, they do inform our future behavior, hopefully, in some way. But yeah, it is a little bit disconcerting. I think a lot of people don't wanna believe that. Well, you know, I'm the sum total of all these losers I've dated or all these people who treated me poorly or all these people I treated poorly. I don't think anybody really wants to believe that, but I guess what we wanna believe isn't really as relevant as what's true, is it? Well, we can do two things with it. We can deny that we did it and it can keep happening, Or we can say, you know, I did that over and over 17 times. And on the 18th time, I got it. I realized what I was doing and I changed it. And now all those other 17 times are a part of my wisdom. Because isn't that part of what gives us wisdom later on in our life? Wisdom doesn't come because we did everything perfectly. I think it comes because of the messes we made. Some of it, at least. For sure. That has to be true. So why don't you want to believe it? It's not that I don't want to believe it, really. It's just that I think a lot of people want to put these things in the past and never think about them again because there's an element of shame for either being bad or being treated badly or something that didn't work out that we blame ourselves for. There's a reason those people are in the rearview mirror one way or another, and I think a lot of people would, same thing with jobs. Let's take the people out of the equation. There's plenty of jobs that people want to think, oh man, remember that? That was terrible, or this was awful, or that didn't work out, or I wish I hadn't gotten fired for eating gummy bears in the stock room. That was stupid. There's all kinds of things like that. But I think that shame is not about, if you feel shame about things that have happened to you, if you've cleaned them up and you still feel shame, it's not about what happened to you. It's something you carry inside that is some work you have to dump about shaming yourself. 
And usually it comes from a very young place. You know, if we can't look back on some of the messes of our life and hold ourselves in some way with some kindness and we feel shame about it, there's a little work there to do. Maybe they need to go to one of your boot camps and learn how to forgive themselves and say, you know what? Coming from where I came from, I get how I did that. I wish I hadn't. And I have to have some mercy on that 24-year-old because I didn't know how to do it differently. I think that forgetting about things is a setup to continue to shame ourselves. I think that there's another way to do it, which is to find a way to forgive ourselves and to see this is what I was programmed to do, saving people which is a big thing a lot of people have, men and women. I'm looking for someone to save all the time. It doesn't come out of the blue. It comes from part of our history, our personality, our culture. If we finally get to the place where we know we can't save anybody because nobody saves anybody, really, then I think that being able to have some compassion for ourselves, some mercy, especially if we've stopped doing the behavior is the way through it, not to lock it in a vault and say, I'll never look back on those first 33 years. The last thing I'll say about closure is that when you accept that some of the pain in your life is going to be a part of your life, then you don't have to suffer over suffering. We can just go on and there's some way that if we accept it, it moves through us. If we don't accept it, we're always pushing it down. But if we can just let it come up like a wave of whatever it is, and let it move through us, then we can move into the next wonderful, happy, high. But trying to push down our human experience, our human feelings, I think causes us more pain, certainly than to allow ourselves to just be all that we are and the sum total of our whole life. Thank you so much. Phenomenal as usual. Really glad to have you here. I'm sure there'll be a next time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great stuff as usual. You're right. She is a sweetheart. I just, there's something endearing, even when phones and things like that ding and we have to edit those out. It just cracks me up that one of those things today was a fax machine. And it's like, you can't even get mad. Who has a fax machine? She's the only person I know who has a fax machine still. Yeah, you can't put that one on me. I'm pretty good with the getting the guests ready, but man, I did not uh, I did not plan for a fax machine in this day and age. Didn't see that coming. It's turn the phone off, turn the email off. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Beep, beep, beep. What's that? Oh, it's my fax machine. So cute. Great big thank you to Linda. Of course, if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank her on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Tweet at me, your number one takeaway from Linda Carroll. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. As usual, we'll be replying to your questions and feedback for Linda and everyone else on Fan Mail Friday. And if you're looking for the show notes, they're on the website at The Art of Charm, or you can tap your phone screen and they should pop right up. I also want to encourage you to join us in our AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text AOC, that's AOC, to 38470. The challenge is about improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. It's free. A lot of people may not know that. That's the idea. It's a fun way to get the ball rolling, get some forward momentum. And we'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, which includes some great practical stuff ready to apply right out of the box on reading body language, having charismatic nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking and influence strategies, persuasion tactics, and everything else we teach here at The Art of Charm. This will make you a better networker, a better connector, and last but not least, a better thinker. So that's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text AOC to 38470. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. 
This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Theme music by Little People. Transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Word of mouth is everything. So share the show with friends and enemies, stay charming, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. 